every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis. A warm welcome to Money Talk for Tuesday, the 27th of February. Thank you for making this show one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong and Singapore. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, Financial Secretary Paul Chan on Monday said Hong Kong will put itself in a position to seize the massive opportunities brought about by the world's transition to environmental sustainability. Speaking at the opening ceremony of the Hong Kong Green Week that began yesterday, Mr Chan said Hong Kong should aspire to be a leading force contributing towards sustainable development in China, the wider region and the world, which will also bring about huge business opportunities. Ahead of the World Trade Organization's ministerial conference, which commenced yesterday, China's Ministry of Commerce said that the US had made false accusations against China in a report that denied its contribution to the World Trade Organization. The US falsely claims that China has created overcapacity, which fully reflects the US side's unilateralism and hegemonic behavior, the ministry said in a statement on its website. The ministry added that China has always firmly supported the multilateral trading system and fulfilled its WTO commitments. BYD has rejected EU accusations that the success of Chinese car companies stemmed from state aid. Michael Xu, European president of BYD, said our success is not because of the subsidy, it's because we have unique technology and our management efficiency is high. He said we invested in this technology much earlier and much more than competitors. The manufacturing subsidies the car maker receives from China are very limited, Mr Xu said. And South Korean officials unveiled measures on Monday to boost shareholder returns as Seoul seeks to replicate Japan's success in raising stock valuations with a corporate governance drive. Companies that prioritise shareholder returns will be given bold incentives and tax benefits under the Corporate Value Up programme, the Financial Services Commission said in a statement Monday. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, David Roche, President and Global Strategist at Independent Strategy, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. I always appreciate your comments on the show, and any questions you may have, you can post them on the Money Talk website by going to peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street Monday, US stocks took a break from last week's NVIDIA-inspired rally. The S&P 500 fell 0.4% to 5,070. The Nasdaq Composites declined 0.1% to close at 15,976. And the Dow slipped 62 points, or 0.2%, to close at 39,069. The S&P 500 and the Dow both hit record highs on Friday. Shares of NVIDIA rose 0.4%, taking its valuation to 1.98 trillion US dollars and just a whisker away from being the first semiconductor company to achieve a $2 trillion valuation. The 10-year Treasury yield ended the day three basis points higher at 4.28%. The US dollar index slipped 0.2% to further below 104 on Monday. Gold settled 0.2% weaker at $2,031 an ounce. Brent crude oil for April delivery rose 1.1% to $82.55 a barrel. And Bitcoin resumed its rally, jumping above $54,000 for the first time since December 2021. The cryptocurrency 
Pepsi was last higher by 5% at $54,460. Japan's Nikkei 225 index hit a fresh high as traders returned from a long weekend. The Nikkei ended 0.3% higher at 39,234. And China markets snapped a nine-day winning streak Monday. The CSI 300 index fell 1% to close at 3,453. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index dropped 91 points or half a percent to 16,635, retreating from a seven-week high. Sentiment was downbeat following reports that 11 Chinese companies lost their credit ratings Friday at Moody's Investor Services. And the Hang Seng Tech Index, that rose 0.1%. Looks like a flat open for the Hang Seng this morning. Futures markets projecting uh, the Hang Seng should start the day around about 16,630. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Our guests are scattered across the four corners of the world this morning. Let's start in Hong Kong. We find Mark Michelson, chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Morning to you, Mark. Good morning. Good evening. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> I know. It's very confusing, isn't it? We yeah, have David yeah. Roche with us, who is in a different part of the world, over in Europe, president of Global Strategist at Independent Strategy. Morning to you, David. Good morning, everybody. And in Washington, D.C., we find, as always, Barry Wood, our U.S. economics correspondent, hopefully somewhere where it's getting warmer and brighter. Yes, it is. The birds are singing, the days are getting longer, and spring is in the air, or at least coming. (laughs) I like this. So I'm going to remain in the U.S. then with our first story, Americans for Prosperity Action, which is a political spending group backed by influential conservative billionaire Charles Cox, said it's going to stop funding Nikki Haley's presidential campaign following her heavy defeat to Donald Trump over the weekend in her home state. And Miss Haley has vowed, though, to press ahead with her White House bid, at least until Super Tuesday, which is a week uh, today following her defeat to the former president. He won 59.8% of the vote compared with her 39.5%. And Barry, Mr. Trump won bigly, as he likes to say, but maybe not as bigly (laughs) as he might have hoped because 40% of Republican voters are saying they don't want Mr. Trump to be their nominee. So I'm wondering how significant that could be. I think that's a problem for the former president. Uh, I think Miss Haley, who never expected to win in South Carolina, despite it being her home state, I mean, she just has spent too much time away and is living too high. She has a big mansion out on the Atlantic coast. But she was losing by 30 points. Now she's only lost by 20. So we'll see how she does in Michigan, which is coming up in less than 24 hours. So she will carry on, as you say, Peter, until Super Tuesday. I think with the loss of this funding from the Koch brothers, she's likely to drop out. Um, I think analysts are probably correct when they say that her candidacy helps President Biden, not uh, really attacking President, former President Trump, although she does a fair bit of that. But we shall see how she comports herself after the anticipated losses in Michigan and all those states that vote on Super Tuesday. Let's just say she's been a very impressive candidate. Her speeches are articulate. She resonates with a lot of voters. She makes it clear that uh, Donald Trump, in her view, cannot be elected. 
And she has most of her ammunition aimed at uh, Joe Biden. It's been uh, she's made it an interesting campaign after Ron DeSantis dropped out. And that seems like ancient history. I, I'm interested to know if, if you have any thoughts on this, Barry, that 40 percent that didn't vote uh, for Donald Trump when the general election comes around. Do you think those 40 percent will hold their noses and, and go and vote for him then? I think so much of the answer to your question depends on what happens in the next six months. Because uh, at the moment, yes, they would vote for Donald Trump because they want a strong man, a strong person to really go after the southern border. You know, mm -hmm. this business of 10 million illegal border crossings, people vanishing, uh, that, that is the principal issue. And also there's a lot of division on the Middle East policy and on Ukraine. But then right after southern border would come crime. We've got a lot of urban crime now. We've got a lot of shoplifting. Those people are going to blame Biden for both of those things, the southern border and crime. I think they will end up voting for for Trump. Mm. Mark, what, what, what are your thoughts? We're getting closer and closer to the election, aren't we? We're going to have to start thinking about this uh, more and more. Presumably, the Democrats are going to have to start thinking about this more and more as well, because they don't appear to have a, a plan B. You almost get the sense that if they're not careful, they could be sort of sleepwalking into defeat. Well, yes, yes and no. You know, the, obviously, uh, abortion is still a big issue, and was just made a bigger issue by the court, Supreme Court decision in Alabama. Which, uh, which is actually not supported by many Americans, interestingly Nor enough. is it supported, Mark, by Donald Trump. I mean, that was no, quite no, a surprise well, that he came out against that ruling from the Alabama Supreme Court. Must have calculated that that'll help him. But these are the sort of <laughs> these are the sort these are the sort of things that that might help. And as as Barry said, it's really unpredictable what's going to happen in the next few months. We've got we've got court proceedings potentially going on. We've got all sorts of other developments. You mentioned the, the international developments, Barry, unless they really boil over, which is, of course, always possible. I expect they won't have a great impact on this. People are still concerned about what you said, immigration, even in a place that doesn't, I guess, have much effect from immigration like South Carolina. Uh, crime you mentioned before, the economy to some extent, as well as we we think it's doing, we often talk about it, a lot of people still don't feel that. Mm -hmm. And they don't feel that it's really improved. So I think I think that's pretty important. So I think we'll see in the next few weeks and uh, how it's going to go to some extent. And Nikki Haley's, what will be her position going forward, I think, after she drops out? Is she going to embrace Donald Trump to some extent or another, like most of her predecessors did when they were defeated, no matter how badly they were criticized, uh, including personally as well as politically uh, during the campaign. I think that might have an impact as well. Hmm. What would be your guess, Mark? Will she endorse Trump? Uh, I think she'll hedge it to begin with. But in the end, she might. I think she might be in a position where, where she has to. Or feels she has to. I don't. I, I, you're, you know more about that than I do, Barry. David. Well, we, my guess would be yes, she will. Yeah, I think. I think that's probably what will happen in the end. David, we talked about this last time that, that you were on as well, and you described Trumpism as a as a as a cult. Have you have you seen or heard anything to to change your mind since? 
Not really. I think the campaign has become more polarized and the people who are going to vote for Biden are going to vote for Biden and people who are going to vote for Trump are the members of the cult and I don't think he can reach out and get more. But I think there are a couple of things that we might um, bear in mind. One is uh, that Trump's next term in office, if he won, would be much more extreme than the first term in office. And I think that has huge consequences, not only for the United States, but also for the world. Because I think where it's going to be felt is in uh, the return to this uh, transaction approach to international trade, tearing up trade agreements, putting on tariffs, uh, bashing China yet again. Uh, it's rare, but I, you'll hear me say, poor old China, pretty undeserved at this stage of its economic cycle. And I think he'll tear up NATO as well, uh, treaty as well. So I think these are of enormous consequences. So does he win the next election? I think not, for the reasons I said, which are that this, uh, the, the, the policies that he's going to enunciate during the period of the campaign will do a lot of damage to anybody who might be a reasonable uh, Republican voter, but who doesn't want to vote for the sort of things that he's going to say he's going to do. Dictator for one day. Well, I wonder. So uh, the interesting thing I think that I learned from everybody else in this that um, you know the all the all the issues that the Americans care about uh, most are domestic, uh, and I think if you also look domestically at the United States, most people think well it doesn't really matter what sort of a turkey you get in the White House, the great American economy just goes on riding its own wave of eternal optimism. Uh, and that would tell me that that you have a bifurcated type of series of events approaching uh, the election. The first is the economy says we're fine anyway, which means the stock market says we're fine anyway. So as long as the Fed does see the way to cutting rates, which it will, I believe, um, then the market's okay. That's number one, despite what I think is in store for it if Trump wins. The second thing I would say is that I think Donald Trump has got a plan, you know, beyond what he's going to have for breakfast or the hamburgers he's going to have for dinner. I think um, Trump's plan is that he's got, he wants Ukraine to lose so that he can walk into the White House and say, well, that was a mess made by Biden. Now, let me make a phone call to my friend in Moscow and clean the whole thing up. I think that is his plan, which is extremely dangerous because we all know that Putin is a lot smarter than his is, and Putin's plan goes out 10, 15 years, and Xi's plan probably goes out 30 or 40 years, which is, of course, bringing uh, the world order to its uh, current world order to its knees. And it would be very likely, I think, that a lot of the damage to be done by Trump in the international sphere is enunciated and done by psychological impact before the actual election decides. And what do I think the election will decide? I think it will not choose John, Donald Trump. But, you know, God help us all if it does. I feel rather depressed now, David, having heard that. It's not... Uh, not, really, really because, uh, not really. I just said the stock market will go on up because the domestic yeah. issues which are going to dominate the election will, will, will be matched by reductions in Fed interest rates, perhaps not at the kind of ridiculous speed that some uh, investment bankers hope for. Mm. But nevertheless, they will be steady and sure. So... Mm. If people are just concerned about the domestic economy and they think, to, you know, whoever gets into the White House will be very limited because Trump will not have a huge mandate, 
then I think the results will be that the you know the Americans could go on feeling well about themselves for 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 time, but the but the external impacts of Trump getting into power will start to have impact. It will start to have an effect upon the world long before he either gets into power or or does not. In other words, a lot of the damage will be done. Mm. I've got yeah, to see. Sorry, carry on. I just don't see the American public as uh, optimistic, uh, David. But I will concede that uh, you're not alone in calling Trump a cult leader. I notice there's a Republican from Illinois who says the same thing. <laughs> as to Ukraine, I think, uh, gosh, what's wrong with a ceasefire? You know, isn't that what big powers do? They they call for you know negotiated settlements. And we don't see any of that from the Biden administration. With with all due respect, um, that would not work. And the reason that would not work for two reasons. Number one is the Ukrainians would never sign on for it. And they're fighting the war. Number two is that Putin would just love that because that would give him the time to consolidate even more his alliance with Xi, with China, and it would give him time to rebuild until he wants to take his next chunk out of uh, the Balkan states or the Baltic states. We completely disagree on this one, but I'm glad. It would be boring if we agreed on everything, David. (laughs) So I think that's exactly what Putin will do. Now, look, I've got a a question from a listener who posted um, on the Money Talk Substack page. His American lives in Cambodia. He says, why does President Joe Biden not get any credit for the US economy being strong and what he says is an outlier among the world's um, economies? So thank you, Bruce, for the question. But Barry, do you want to have a crack at that? Why why is Joe Biden not getting credit for the US economy? Well, Bruce, it's a conundrum. And I think that uh, commentators throughout the U.S. ask that same question because clearly the economy has improved and it's doing well. All you have to do is look at the stock market. I think the answer is that grocery store prices, restaurant prices, airline fare prices remain high. And as Jay Powell said at his last press conference, the accumulation of that, that's what the consumer sees So, yes, the consumer looks at all that data that we've just mentioned and they say, right, but it's still a mess. So it is something that somehow the president has to figure out how to reverse or it's going to hurt him in the election. Are you better off than you were four years ago? The famous question that was asked by many candidates when President Reagan ran. And a lot of people feel that they aren't just for the reasons that Barry said. Whether that's realistic or not, that's another question. But certainly the economy has improved and, and wages have improved to a greater extent. There are a lot of areas, as David pointed out, that are very positive. But at the same time, a lot of people just don't feel it for one reason or another. I think that's probably the most dangerous thing for the populist vote, not only in America, by the way, because we have European and, local and national elections in Europe, too, is this kind of sense of what the buzzword is polycrisis, which is people started feeling bad about themselves with COVID. We then have war. <laughs> we then have inequality. We then have the fact that we all feel very bad about ourselves. And it's like waking up for a nightmare when you know that what you saw in the nightmare is not real, but it kind of clouds your mind and makes you feel pessimistic for days afterwards. Call it, call it years. But uh, I think the fact that people feel almost irrationally bad about things, even though actually if you look 
at a lot of the the, the kind of figures, the, the things have actually got better, but they feel bad about it. That and and therefore they look to solutions which also say you feel bad about it, and we know what to do about it. Of course, they don't. <laughs> and right. I think that uh, that that sense of polycrisis, that sense of mental hangover, is a huge boost to populist politicians because they do not have to evolve rational policies to deal with the real problem, because the real problem is in the heads of people en masse. Mm. Well okay. said. Okay. Um, I want to ask you about Berkshire Hathaway, um, the Oracle of Omaha. I think, Barry, you're a big fan, aren't you, of the Oracle of uh, Omaha, <laughs> Warren Buffett? Um, he's basically yes. saying he's run out of things to invest in. He says um, there's virtually no possibility of eye-popping performance in the year ahead. He wrote that in his annual letter to shareholders on Saturday. He said there remain only a handful of companies in this country capable of truly moving the needle at Berkshire, and they've been endlessly picked over by us and others. His cash pile has now hit a record uh, 167.6 billion uh, US dollars. He said, for a while, we had an abundance of candidates to evaluate. If I missed one, and I missed plenty, another always came along. He said, those days are long behind us. I mean, this says something, doesn't it, maybe, about the stock market. If um, if Warren Buffett can't find anything uh, to invest in and, and the sort of valuations that we're seeing at the moment. It does. I'm thinking about that 167 billion, which is roughly three times the GDP of, say, Cambodia. Uh, it, it's it's extraordinary. All of that money is invested in T-bills, so we know what that's yielding. And probably Warren Buffett and uh, Greg Abel are thinking we may be growing that cash pile for the next two or three years. And they'll probably be happy because those are going to be positive returns in real terms because uh, we now have positive real interest rates. So I'm sure that Warren would say, well, look, something came along. I'd, I'd make a stab at it. But in the meantime, I'm happy to get my uh, 4% or 3%, 4%. And uh, I'll just keep uh, that growing. It is an extraordinary number. But it's also interesting when you read that annual shareholder's letter, he really gives several paragraphs of tribute to Charlie Munger, who's, of course, no longer with us. And uh, so it was a subdued letter all the way around. With that again, I can re- I, well, let me relate this to a couple other stories that you've, you've raised, Peter. First of all, the uh, Japanese stock market, uh, <laughs> Warren, Warren Buffett has said, has, uh, I guess, put a little money in some of the major trading companies like Mitsubishi, Mitsui, and Sumitomo, mm-hmm. and their stock has gone up. And BYD, which is being criticized for taking subsidies, they got a big subsidy from Warren Buffett. <laughs> There's no <laughs> to help, help drive them. So, a market subsidy, that some, was. But yes, it was. But he still had finding some places to uh, at least support uh, support various companies. David, you're a renowned investor. I mean, if you had a oh, hundred... I'm not a renowned investor. I'm a, I'm a renowned pauper, which is quite a different thing <laughs> So, uh, at all. If I'm, we could I'm change that then and give you $167 billion, would you be able well, to actually, find opportunities? <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm, I'm deeply impressed that his um, pile of cash could buy Ireland um, GDP, <laughs> which would uh, probably be a big improvement in governance. 
<laughs> and therefore raise the well-being of the country completely uh, rather than what we elect. Uh, so, um, you know, I, um, I'll talk to him about it. I'll talk to him about it. But where, where <laughs> David, would you look for opportunities at the moment for investing? Presumably you've got to go out, if, if he feels that the US is too overvalued and there aren't opportunities there, he's got to look elsewhere. What about here in Asia? Are, are there opportunities? Well, you are know, there yeah, markets? We go back to what we said about China the last time, that, I mean, the famous statement we made two, two and a half years ago, that it was uninvestable, much, much... Uh, controverted on the on the program but nevertheless i mean obviously if it's fallen as far as it has mm. i mean you have to find value now of course i'm the wrong person to spot babies being thrown out with bathwater because i don't particularly like babies and know less about them but um the fact of the matter is there has to be value uh, at these levels mm. now what upsets me a little bit is that the indices have bounced you'd expect that sort of a bounce when it's gone down that far and that everybody for whose judgment in in investment I have absolutely no respect is screaming by China. That really worries me. But I am sure there's why because you don't think China is investable. No, yet? because I think these particular people are are kind of gung ho cowboys with bracelets who are in champagne bars sipping sipping alcohol at four thirty in the afternoon in the city of London. Uh, and, and I don't have much admiration. For, for their brain, that organ, the, that the stomachs can stand it. I have more admiration for that organ. But no, what I'm saying is there is a, there is a chorus of saying, oh, now's the time it's gone down, let's buy it. And I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that when a market goes down that far, there are individual shares, which obviously are fundamentally cheap and of value. That's one thing I would say. The other thing I would say is like Warren Buffett, I'm per, I can I cannot get real real money on US, uh, US government debt. I don't think the dollar is going to collapse because I think there's a security demand for US dollars, which is going to grow in future years, no matter who is in the White House. And so I don't, I, the dollar is safe and I can get a real return on my money. So I, I like that. The third thing I would say, I mean, can anybody think of anything worse to say about Europe that has not already been said? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, European shares are supposed to have been going to close the gap with the U.S. shares, as far as I can remember, for the last decade. And, of course, all it's done is widen. So, I mean, perhaps there is an argument for saying there is value in Europe as well, because it is, it is just so cheap. And so th that argument would be the famous what strategists always forget to do, which is to, to say, well, what could go right? Strategists make their living on saying, oh, well, what could go wrong? But actually, what could go right is, you know, Ukraine quietens down, perhaps for the wrong reason, but it quietens down. And that has to be a factor overhanging things. The ECB uh, starts to reduce interest rates before the Fed because the economy is so much weaker. And lo and behold, we find that the German economy is not vanishing down a plug hole of its own making. Uh, it is actually recovering simply because the falling inflation in Europe has incre is increasing real real wages very fast. In other words, we have wage settlements which are uh, in the 4.55%, depending how you measure it, and we have inflation which is heading really down. So and people start to spend this, and there's plenty of wealth in Europe to boot that could be spent. So the only thing, I'm, I'm, I'm not making the argument, gosh, it's the European Renaissance, because I don't buy that one at all. The only thing I would say is, you know, something could go a little bit right and a lot of a lot of the uh, the negativism is already in the criticism of Europe today. 
You're mentioning markets there that have been beaten down, like some of the European markets. Well, although some of them are all-time highs at the moment. Um, China, obviously. But I presume you, you have to worry anyway that if you, even if you could find these cheap shares in China, once you've bought them, you might not be able to sell them again, given all the restrictions that are being placed <laughs> on you. So would you look at markets like Japan, which are at all-time highs? Do, do, do you get uh, excited by a market like that? Um, Japan is a bit of a hype. But I mean, it, it has, uh, and I would starting to be pretty worried about putting more money into it. It's been a position, a long position that we've held for a long time. Uh, and there are good corporations there and they are being run much more for shareholders. But how far can you actually go on that story? There's nothing new mm. to say. Uh, so my feeling is that uh, Japan is not one of those, what, what I think we're looking for here is for things that are beaten up or which are absolutely sure, like U.S. debt. Japan kind of falls between the two. It's a nice story. Uh, but the, the reality is that Japan is a country which is doing what it does best, which is dying. The, the, you know, the demography is, is, is like Germany. It's our Vatican City. Now, Vatican City has got a religion, you know, kind of reason of faith to be like that. But, I mean, Japan just doesn't have the demography to be um, a really exciting economy, and it's not. What you have had is the fact that people discovered that Japanese shares are cheap and they're being running run more for shareholders, and that the Bank of Japan is not going to make it, exp you know, make the money more expensive in Japan. It's finding excuses every time around, and therefore they bought a lot of it. So would I buy more today? No. Mark, are your members finding Japan exciting at the moment in terms of the economy, in terms of investments? Well, in terms of investment, exciting might be overstating slightly. For some of them, a little bit more, but at least as an alternative. And, you know, in certain areas, like semiconductors, for example, Morris Zhang was just there, who founded a fairly famous company called TSMC, opening a new plant in Japan. Hmm. That wouldn't have happened. That wouldn't have happened uh, a few years ago. It's, I agree with David, though this isn't a this isn't a dramatic change, but it it gives it gives an alternative at least a little something more for some companies to consider, and that's really what it is. So I think I mentioned this before. People I talked to in Japan, including people at some of the uh, embassies and so on, say they're they don't have time to see all the people, all the investors, uh, mostly mostly FDI that are considering Japan again, whether they're actually going to go there or not, but at least they're looking at it. And part of this is because they've had problems in China or elsewhere. Barry? Yeah, I I, I agree with uh, that, Mark. I think uh, American investors are interested in Japan. I think it's noteworthy that American Airlines is going to start a nonstop flight from New York to Tokyo. Uh, that reveals something. I mean, who's going to be aboard that those flights? Also, I think that the TSMC investment in Kyushu, which is right down at the southern tip of, well, it's the southernmost main island. But uh, that's significant because it was done very quickly. It was done from beginning to opening in less than two years. I don't think the TSMC can match that in the United States. 
Mm. David, Not in Arizona. You're right. <laughs> David, what about South Korea, which is trying to be the next Japan now? It's, it's announced its set of stock market reforms to try and mirror what Japan has been doing, a name and shame campaign, trying to get companies uh, to, to shake up uh, their, their boards and, 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 and embrace corporate reform to try and get the book values up. Are you convinced by this effort? Well, you know, it worked terribly well in Japan. It really did get uh, corporate management focused on making some money for shareholders and running mm. companies uh, to that end. Can it work in Korea? They certainly have the assets to make it work. They have a lot of companies where, where returns could be proved dramatically. But then there is a one dramatic difference, and that is the structure of the chaebol, the way that they are held and the way they are controlled. In Japan, that structure was broken up after the Second World War. In Korea, it has never been broken up. And since I can remember in my various um, uh, you know, roles as a strategist, I've always looked and been in Japan and talked about the confrontation between government trying to achieve one policy direction and the chaebol uh, really not moving and ultimately de defeating and diluting the government's efforts. So the real question is, is it different this time? And I think given that investors are short of money, short, sorry, short, not short of money, they're long on money and short of ideas, I think it could well take off to an extent. But the reality is, I doubt very much that the, Chinese, that the Korean government can win out over the control of the chaebol. I think ultimately Korea is ruled by the chaebol. Mm, so I, used to, I used to work for a weekly newsletter uh, 40 years ago, and I was writing the same story 40 years ago about Korea mm. and about the, about the reform of the table. You know, they said they said you you mentioned Peter. Investors said they'd like to see forceful steps to address corporate practices that favor controlling shareholders, such as the founding families, over smaller shareholders. That's been the situation for as long as I can remember. And I, Absolutely. you know, it may, it may change a little bit, I, and I hope it does. But at the same time, every every president I can think of has started off with saying he's going to he's going to uh, reform the table, and it's never happened. Mm. I, I suppose also there's the issue that even if these reforms did start to work, the South Korean market is just a fraction of the size of the Japanese market. So the, yeah. the investment opportunities anyway, after all that effort, are going to be quite limited. And what's the collateral damage of, of doing that, too, because they're just so important to the economy and what would it do to sentiment and all the rest of it? I don't know the answer to that, but I think that's, that's one of the concerns. So should Warren Buffett turn his attention to India, maybe? <laughs> Uh -oh. Who are you asking? Uh, I'll ask you, David, as you volunteered. <laughs> I think you, you, the, the Indian story is very interesting because there's no doubt that Modi has done a lot of good things for the economy, both in terms of infrastructure investment, getting better control on money supply, broadening the tax base, etc. But he has done a huge amount of damage to India as, an, as a, a democracy, and that it is becoming much more of an ethno-led kind of majoritarianism uh, type of state, which puts Hinduism first. And I think in the long run, that will fragment India and make it much more fragile politically than in the past. So mm. that's a negative. Now, I don't think that India is in a position to replicate 
or to replace China, which everybody is looking for something to replace China in the kind of growth machine which which powered globalization and the whole emerging market story. India can't do that. I mean, I'll give you just one figure. Indian share of international trade is 1.57%, and China's is 15.1%. And if you go to international reserves, FDI, and everything else, it just isn't. India is not China. I would have to go a huge distance to become that. Mm -hmm. So I would say that uh, India is a good story. Um, I certainly uh, would not be kind of buying into it hugely at the moment because I think it's overhyped ahead of the election. But it is no in no way can it fulfill the investment banker's dream of being the little module that you just take off the shelf and put it into the globalization machine and the emerging market story, and it replaces China. Remember, China was really the story of using FDI, foreign money, to actually create centers of excellence, which then powered an economic reform based on hard economics. The stock market was only the last day story coming in really from 2017, 2020. But it is not that. In India's cases, the stock market story is being put first. Mm -hmm. And I really don't believe that is how uh, India can replace China. And I just to underline that our members and we, India, our our group in India is our largest group. It's over 3,000 companies. And exactly that. There is some promise. Some companies are are doing well, but I think they're they're pretty clear-eyed that it's you know it's not China. It's also a fraction of manufacturing in China, as well as all the other all the other uh, statistics that David stated. And of course, different states who have different rules, and sometimes those rules change. Uh, China is relatively reliable. It doesn't mean that you know doesn't mean that that companies aren't looking for alternatives to some extent or another, but still maintaining maintaining a presence in China and also also not understanding that India is in a replacement for, for China. Mm. So, Barry, we're struggling to spend Warren Buffett's uh, $167 billion even overseas, but uh, I suppose you can understand why he's concerned about the US. I mean, you look at uh, companies like NVIDIA, fantastic as they are, they're driving, you know, they're, they're responsible for about a quarter of the S&P 500's returns uh, at the moment so far this year. So you sort of wonder, don't you, how long uh, this magnificent seven rally, particularly the NVIDIA rally, can go on? Yeah, look, I'm not an investment analyst, but it does seem to me that you could make the strong case that NVIDIA is a bubble. Now, it's a wonderful company. I've seen their headquarters in San Mateo. And by the way, they don't manufacture in the United States. They manufacture through TSMC in Taiwan. Mm. And uh, yes, they are dominant in the thrusting forward AI industry. They're very big in gaming. So good luck to them. But Peter, don't forget, there's many other tech companies that dominate globally, and they're based in the Silicon Valley. So yeah, I think, as David said, uh, the U.S. is probably a very good place to put your money. 
Okay. Let me ask you about uh, the World Trade Organization. They're having their ministerial conference um, this week. It's the first time they've met um, in two years. They've got a lot of issues on the agenda. One of them is trying to sort out their dispute settlement uh, system, their their appellate body, which uh, the the various members of the World Trade Organization can't agree on. The US wants it completely reformed uh, to be a one-stage panel rather than the two-stage appeal process. Um, Can I ask the three of you... Is the WTO, is, is it fit for purpose anymore? What do you think, Mark? I've got a PowerPoint right here in front of me. Do you want me to read it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I teach. Look, the, the World Trade Organization is, is the caretaker of the system of rules and, and guidelines negotiated over 80 years, and it's fracturing. It's it's, mm. it's it's coming coming off of the seam. It's not just a negotiating forum. So they have to find, where do you begin to reform it? Find places of interest. For example, the Chinese have said their proposal is to get the appellate back, body back working again, plus fishery subsidies, e-commerce, investment facilitation. That's great. But one of the major challenges, of course, is, is China. China's done very well with the WTO and so on, but it operates as a market economy in some areas and not not in other areas, the state-planned economy in other areas, and the WTO wasn't designed for that. So in order to in order to, uh, in order to deal with this, there has to be a redesign, and you probably have to start with, with small steps, looking for issues, so-called plurilateral agreements, where uh, several countries will agree and then you try to push that forward. And that's sort of what's being done in various areas with mi- very mixed success. I mean, there has not been a successful round since the WTO was formed. Mm. Yeah, and the, and the WTO yeah. is yeah. Uh, is a very nice talking forum. It's a bunch of lawyers in Geneva. I'm glad it exists, but it, yeah. it's ineffective as a trade okay. body. And as long as you've got 180 whatever countries in it and majority, I mean, you don't have weighted voting. So it's nonsense. And by the way, just throwing this out, when the American Treasury official speaks about something he wants to take to the WTO about overcapacity, isn't that just really a code word for saying we're afraid you're going to export more deflation to the rest of the world? Mm. And, and and who's going to judge it with the, you know, since the Americans have not appointed new officials to the appellate body? I mean, it's, it's sort of it's sort of uh, sort of ironic in many ways. China, on the other hand, sees the WTO as useful, but of course, in its in its own terms, and also representing the so-called global South. We've heard a lot about, even though all members of the WTO have equal votes, there's still a feeling among many countries that they they don't have nearly the the authority or influence that they feel that they should have, and China. Maybe the champion, you know, whether they really are or not, that's another question. But certainly, we're in a position to uh, to attract uh, attract several several members that uh, you know would support their 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 views on on reform. David, do you think that China is would be that bothered if the World TO, the WTO fell apart? So aren't they trying to build their own version of the well, WTO exactly. around emerging their emerging markets and Belt and Road Initiative? Exactly. I mean, I I think that's completely right. Um, China sees this as an opportunity to create a trade organization of which um, is grouped, groups the global south. And in doing so, they see themselves as being at the top of the pyramid 
and all these nice nations down below kowtowing to China. And so China has no interest in the WTO actually working. Uh, and on the, the U.S. is unlikely to move from its position that if they don't re reform the appellate process, then uh, the U.S. is not going to approve of them. Now, I'm not going to actually, you know, say, okay, you're reformed. So I think, unfortunately, we're, this whole issue is going to become the kind of uh, confrontation between the alliance of democracies and, on the other hand, the, the alliance of autocracies. It's, mm -hmm. it's going to be part and parcel of that. And I think the winner will be China, but not in a way that actually changes chalk from cheese. Because if I can just have a look at um, the, the, what's happening on the ground, um, I, I, I was asked to work on, on looking at China's influence in a part of the global south that people talk about less, which is Africa during the week. And if you would ask me, I would have thought that the Belt and Road um, whole business of roping in countries into trading with China or in becoming financially dependent on China would have had a huge impact on, on Africa because they have achieved uh, so little on their own. And actually, the, uh, the figures are that only 11% of the whole debt of Africa is actually sourced from China, only 11%, mm. and the rest is uh, everybody else. And secondly, that the amount of money flowing into China uh, has fallen from flowing into Africa from China has fallen from uh, approximately 200 billion U.S. dollars uh, in 2007 to 50 billion U.S. dollars my, today. My, my. So uh, this figures this shocked me because if you would ask me beforehand, I'd probably turn them all around. And it goes to show how enormously little the impact of uh, China's attempt to reach out and rope in the global south. Now, I'm sure it's bigger in Latin America. I'm sure it's bigger in Asia. And certainly in Central Asia, it's bigger, where they, they're up against the Russians as to who is going to control uh, Central Asia. Um, but I, I was kind of amazed that the whole global south is, 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 is really not taking off but nevertheless is top of their political ambitions. Hmm. And I think the WTO is part and parcel of that. They have no interest in, in agreeing to anything about the WTO. Their aim is to make it part of this Global, global South Trust, which I don't think endangers the world, because I think in the end, we'll come back in 10 years, look at these figures, and they won't be that different. It will not have worked as, a, as an instrument to achieve global dominance. And I just mentioned on top of that, of course, uh, Barry may agree or disagree, but within the U.S., I think there's very little support for the WTO, certainly among the major political parties. So that's right from the other side. Hmm. Uh, I wonder it, what percentage of U.S. people on the street know what WTO stands yeah, no, for. No, I've ever heard of it. Not many, but they're not the ones that make the decision. Yeah, you're right. 
It, it does sound like, doesn't it, that even before the, the ministerial meetings, there's not much agreement. You've got the uh, China saying that the US is falsely accusing it of uh, not liking the WTO and creating overcapacity. We had yesterday BYD for the first time talking about the EU's um, investigation into electric vehicles, saying we are not, uh, you know, our, our dominance is not because of subsidies from the state. It's because we're so good. We make such good technology. We have such great management um, in, in place. And what we get from the Chinese state um, is, is minimal. I don't know, Mark, where well, do you want to make uh, a... Uh, oh, David? Can I, just, can I just come in on that? Because I think it's, it's, it's quite important. BYD, the first ship with 3,000 vehicles on it, landed in Europe in time for the Geneva Auto Show. Mm. They have bought 11 ships. <laughs> now, now, if you look then at what is happening to German car producers, which is really a black hole in the, in the core of the German economy, BYD has a point. German electric cars are really shitty vehicles. <laughs> so on the one hand, you have this incredible armada, if to put it in historical terms, which is about to invade Europe, capable of carrying <laughs> 30, 11 ships sailing across the sea with a Chinese flag on the back of it, with 30,000 vehicles on board. And, you know, little old Volkswagen or BMW in their little punt sinking with the oars in the air saying, help, help. And that is exactly it. And what happened to European solar panels, where now the technology made in Germany, the, the solar panels now, 90 I think it is 98% of European consumption of solar panels is made in China. That is not politically going to be allowed to happen. Yeah, exactly. And there are a lot. Also, I'll just mention there are a lot of other BYDs in, in China. They're not, <laughs> some are going to succeed. Some of them are not going to succeed. But I've seen some of them, you know, in electronic vehicles and autonomous vehicles and so on, moving ahead very, very quickly. As I said, some of some of succeed some will fail but it's pretty impressive actually this yeah and, and Barry, final word to you. The US is presumably not going to allow this to happen either. But what seems to be a little bit odd is they don't seem to be able to agree with the EU about how to respond to it. That's part of the problem, isn't it? They can't seem to come up with a common um, approach, uh, a common response, because in many ways they've oh, we both will. got the same problems. We will, we will because uh, what David is saying about uh, the Germans and all those cars coming from China into Europe uh, the same thing applies. Although we've got Mexico, they can go into Mexico, build a plant quickly, and then export. That'll cause the uh, United States free trade agreement with Mexico, Canada to be revised. Mm. But David's right. But uh, no, I think the Americans and the Europeans were just alike. We don't build solar panels either, and we 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 we're losing on electric cars. Although we have Tesla, so who knows. Okay. Well, look, love to carry on. Fascinating discussion uh, this morning. We'll have to continue that another day. But thank you all very much. You heard there Barry Wood, who is our US economics correspondent over in Washington, D.C. David Roche, President and Global Strategist at Independent Strategy and our regular uh, Tuesday morning commentator, Mark Michelson, who's Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back tomorrow 
And I'll be joined on the show by Enzio Von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management. And with a view from Japan is John Byrne, who's Principal Economist at the Asian Development Bank. Have a great day. Money Talk.